I'm Steve Fisher. In religion, the creator refers to God. In television, the creator is the writer or writers who developed a significant part of a TV show's format, concept, characters, and pilot script. Actually, something like a god. Or perhaps it's more like a master chef, creating a tasty concoction that the sous chefs must recreate night after night. Writer Rene Balsay has written scores of TV shows and films, and has created series such as Law and Order, Criminal Intent, and FBI Most Wanted. You get all these strings hanging from the ceiling all at once. You get a star, you get a script, you get this, you get that. And then you pull everything, all the strings down at once, and you hope the sky doesn't fall on your head. He's here to talk about TV from the eye of the creator on Light Slices. I'm going to start with a question that I think you know the answer to. Who is Rene Balsay? <laughs> Depends on the time of year and what year it is. So, Well, we are recording in February. So yeah, in so February, February of 2023, who, who are you? I'm still a writer. And when I have a show to produce, I'm a producer. Right now, I'm also preparing a three-volume book of photographs that will be published in the fall. So photography has always been kind of a side hustle for me. So I'm that. I'm a travel companion for my wife, who's <laughs> an inveterate uh, traveler, but we travel with purpose. What What's that purpose? Well, for example, we went up to the Canadian Arctic in October because we were sponsoring an art residency with a Chinese artist to work with Inuit artists. So we went up there. We have various philanthropic projects in Asia. So we travel to those. We're not much as far as sort of tourism is kind of a byproduct of these travels. But anyways, these are things I'm defining myself by what I do. So I don't know if that's a correct answer of of who is Rene Balsay, but there, there is no right got. or wrong answer. It's, yes. it's, what, whatever's in your head. Now, I know you started as a journalist. What made you decide to, to become a TV writer, especially in fiction? Well, it all goes back to when I was seven years old. If you want to know the beginning of my involvement with the entertainment business. So they were shooting a movie in my neighborhood. So, of course, my friend and I went to to. to take a look at it. And it was Geneviève Bougeot's first ever movie. Mm. And I grew up in Montreal, Canada. While we were sitting there, the assistant director came up to us and said, hey, kids, you want to make a quarter each? Sure. So so you're going to be you're going to pretend you're like the, the you're the kids of this guy and you're going to be walking with him and, and you're going to see somebody lying on the street and you're going to walk up to that person and look at them. And that's all you have to do, and, we'll, and you'll each get a quarter. So we did this, and then we asked the uh, assistant director for our quarter. He said, come back tomorrow. We'll have it. So the next morning, we run out of our houses. We go down to where they're shooting, and we sort of buttonhole the assistant director and said, hey, mister, we're here for our quarters. And the guy looks at us and says, get the hell out of here. And he stiffed us for our quarters. So that taught me everything I needed to know about the business. Exactly. Uh, I was going to say it hasn't changed since then. <laughs> exactly. But karma is is a bitch. Uh, the, the film was completed, but then never released. So there you go. I didn't really choose to do television. I, I, was, I, I kind of grew up in the age of feature films was the thing. Television was 
kind of a sad sack kid's sister of of the motion pictures. But then in the 80s, things kind of changed around. Feature films became the domain of Steven Spielberg and Joe Dante and Gremlins and this and you know it just lost its its way as far as I was concerned. But television with shows like Hill Street Blues and St. Elsewhere kind of sort of grew a, a kind of social conscience or, or certainly became a better venue for, for dramas that I was interested in. So so while I was negotiating with Steve Tisch, the producer, on a feature film, he was also doing a movie of the week. And he said, well, would you be interested in writing it you know, while we wait for this feature film deal to, 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 with Disney to, to make? And I said, sure. So in the time it took for the feature film deal just to be negotiated, I wrote the TV movie. It got produced and it aired on CBS, which kind of taught me an, an important lesson. Like in TV, things get made kind of in a hurry. And so that led to my being hired on a Dick Wolf show called, oh, what was it called? I forget what it was called, but it was about ninja cops in Las Vegas. And then that contract ran out and then Dick was developing a law and order. So two of the producers on that show decided to keep me on to work on the initial 13 episodes of law and order. And the rest is kind of history. I know you've done a lot of work with Dick Wolf. Is he the type of guy that once he hires somebody, he doesn't let you go? Dick likes to take credit for hiring me. Of course, he, he had no idea who I was, even after I'd been working on the show for two or three years. In fact, I was sitting in an office with another writer, Michael Chernichen, who was also on the show for two or three years. And Dick walked by and said, Renee! And he walked in and he had a some newspaper clipping in his hand and he I've got a, a, a story I did. And he hands it to Michael Chernichin because he could <laughs> tell us apart. We were just knit and wit. That was, that was it. So, you know, Dick is loyal until other considerations come in. And okay, so, okay, so, you, so your lifeline is not tied to him. No, well, no, it's tied to some shows I did with him for him or whatever, but no, he was, he was a pretty easy guy to work with. You know, in, in terms of, Big time Hollywood producers. He's kind of a fire and forget kind of person. When I was running Law and Order and when I was running Criminal Intent, I think if I heard from him once every two or three months, that was kind of a lot. Of course, if the shows were doing badly, I would have heard from him much more regularly. I know you've gone on to create shows. Which shows did you create? Well, Criminal Intent, the Law and Order, Menendez, Murders. FBI Most Wanted, a show called Joe with Jean Renault, which was shot in Paris. Another French show called, it was Bodyguards. Uh, I forget what the French title was. So a, f- a few things here and there. That's what I want to talk about, because talk yeah. about what goes into creating a TV show. Yeah, a lot of luck. <laughs> now the, the whole landscape has changed. Now television shows, whether it's for a streamer, especially if it's for streamers, they want what they call an IP, an intellectual property behind it, like a book, another movie, a, a reboot of a show, but something that uh, the executives can point to and say, well, of course we said yes to this because, my God, there was a book or there was another TV show. Who would have known it would fail? It was backed up by something. So they, they like to have an IP, something that 
is in a way pre-sold to an audience. Right now I'm watching Slow Horses on mm. Apple TV, which is a great show based on this series of books, which I had no knowledge of until I started watching the show. But there they could say, oh, you know, this, these books have sold millions of copies. So, of course, there's an audience already built in. It sort of palliates their their risk and their investment. In network television, it was usually sell us an idea that's kind of original, but is a spin on something we're very familiar with. <laughs> so it's not so unique, but it's a little bit unique. So, you know, you're kind of slicing the baloney very, very thin. So the trick is to come up with, with something like that. And whether there's a, a, a star attached to it that really gives it a, a different spin, like a Vincent D'Onofrio and in Criminal Intent, which kind of shifted the paradigm enough to make it different. Then once you've convinced the network or even I think the streamer, they still work kind of the same. You write a pilot and then everybody sits around. Okay, I don't know if it's so good anymore or the concept. They they flip a coin, essentially, because nobody (laughs) knows anything. Of of course, you know, Netflix says, well, they have their their algorithms and everything. But it's it's all basically by the seat of the pants. And then they decide, okay, let's shoot the pilot and see how the cast gels together, how these characters mesh, kind of a proof of concept. And then if by then you've gone from like in network television in the old days, they, they'd order 50 pilot scripts, they'd shoot 10 maybe, and then out of those they'd pick two. Now they order... 10 pilot scripts, they shoot three and, and still pick one or two. So once you've, once you've shot the pilot, then again, they sit around, they take it to Las Vegas to show it in, in front to, to regular people because that Las Vegas, as we know, is filled with regular people. Of course. Sort of based on all of that. Not to mention what happens in Vegas stays in Vegas. So if the pilot is crap, it stays in Vegas. So then they decide, okay, we're going to pick up the show. And sometimes if they decide they don't pick up the show, then suddenly there's interventions by whether it's Michael Crichton walking into Les Moonves' office or somebody's office and say, no, you have to pick this up. Or Steven Spielberg makes a phone call. Other, other things happen. The gods intervene. And then the pilot that was not picked up the series suddenly gets picked up the series. It's a lot of... Stanley Kramer, the film producer, once described it as you get all these strings hanging from the ceiling all at once. You get a star, you get a script, you get this, you get that. And then you pull everything, all the strings down at once, and you hope the sky doesn't fall on your head. But what you, you hope what you have is a show. And so it's a, there's a lot of chemistry that goes on. Then you have to hire writers to start writing the episodes you hire a crew it's like you put together a small army and then you go on a campaign when you create a show do you have any control over the casting do you have it it, can you say that's not right that person's not right for the character or no this is what i envision a lot of it is agency calls up the network calls up the studio or tells their producer client oh we have this actor who has gotten married, he's having a kid on the way, he doesn't want a feature film actor, who doesn't want to be going off to locations anymore, he just wants to be in the same town 
and just work there, which television series is perfect for that. So he's open to doing television, which was the case with Vincent. He decided that for for that period in his life, he wanted to be home regularly. He had a growing family and this kind of fit the bill and suddenly be an idiot to say no he wasn't i pictured a blonde guy you know much shorter <laughs> you know i was like forget it you got vincent d'onofrio that's your cast people like Catherine irby in criminal intent myself and fred burner who was my non-writing executive producer excellent at casting we looked at her and we picked her so if you're the showrunner you definitely have Input the studio has final with uh, on CBS. I did a pilot with called Hopewell and Les Moonves, who thought of himself with a certain justification that he knew how to pick the, the stars. So we went through Rod Holcomb, who did the pilot for ER, was directing this one. And we must have gone through 50 actors. And Les Moonves just kept digging every single one. One after the other. We ended up with a pretty good actor, but the pilot didn't go forward. But so the studio and certainly these network boss has ultimate final say on who the casting is. One of the things I love about the Law and Order shows is that so much of it's done in New York and you have a very high input of Broadway theater actors. Yeah. Who are excellent actors. They could be stars on Broadway and people outside of New York, the New York area don't know who they are. Right. Yeah. I think we uh, on Law and Order, we hired something like 20,000 different character actors in and leading actors in mostly from Broadway in New York City. You know, so it it used to be you you go to see a, a play. And in the playbill, everybody would have, hey, they did Law and & Order. And then it became a thing, no, even if you've done 50 Law & Orders, don't mention it in your playbill thing. <laughs> and then you go, oh, what's wrong with this actor? He's, he hasn't done any Law & Orders. He must be a terrible <laughs> actor. <you know? laughs> when it's based on reality, like with the NYPD shows and, and FBI shows, how closely does the creator, do you work with those entities? To, for the realism? Well, we don't really work with the entity because I think that gets to be a little sticky for both sides. But we have consultants who are either recently retired from the FBI or it used to be that they could actually moonlight as consultants uh, at the NYPD. And a, and a, but um, now it's like you have to be <laughs> retired. You can't. So it, it hews to quite a bit of reality in terms of procedures and et cetera. Same thing with like in the law and order side. I mean, it feels weird for me to talk about law and order because it just seems like just another life. So, so I, I don't know what they do now. But kind of answers my next question, because when you create a show, what is your ongoing involvement with the show? Do you just write it and then say farewell? I'll take my weekly check. Well, it depends on criminal intent and the the show Joe and and the the Menendez, I, I was fully involved, like certainly for criminal intent for the first five years. You work 90 hours a week, 100 hours a week. And that was all consuming for the first five years. The same thing for the other shows I was involved with. For FBI Most Wanted, I did the first year. Then COVID hit. Then they went on. It went on without me, which is fine. I just, so I get a check every week and a taste of the back end and all of that. So whatever I'm talking, whatever I'm saying 
generally does not apply to streaming. Uh, so streaming is totally different. It's the, the economics of streaming, at least pre pre-negotiations of the uh, of the writers guild contract with the producers at this point the economics are not very good for writers and i would say for directors or the, for the creatives people hopefully that'll change after the negotiations that are upcoming it's it's very hard to make a living in any consistent fashion in streaming you know and the streamers will argue yeah, even for the streaming companies, it's hard for them to to make a living too. Is that even true for uh, streamers like HBO and uh, HBO is not really a streamer. It's a, kind of a different hybrid. It's a yes, it is a subscription based thing, but it's not. If, I don't know, I don't know what the technical difference is, but it is different. The guy who did what was the biggest show on Netflix in the last was Squid Game. The big. That's the biggest hit they've had. The creator, writer, showrunner makes no money in residuals from that show, makes no money off the back end. He made no money off this show. He, really? he got paid like minimal, whatever they pay in Korea for writing. And that's it. He just got, here's your $10. Thank you very much for Squid Game. That is surprising. But he's also, it's kind of opened his career. Well, he already had a 15-year career proceeding. He made a number of feature films, and so he's off of this. He made nothing when they sold the show to Netflix. Netflix doesn't pay. When Netflix first began, they would, they would buy, this is kind of inside baseball, but they would pay your cost of production, and, they, and here's 30% on top of that. That's your profit. Then it became 20%. So your cost of production plus 20%. Then it became 10%. Now I don't, and some shows, I don't even know if it's 10% or some movies. I don't know if it's, if they even pay anything. Who knows? If an actor leaves a series that you yeah. created, are you consulted with replacing that actor? Or is that, that whatever the sitting writing team on the show, that's their job. Well, the showrunner, if I'm the showrunner, obviously I'm consulted. I, on FBI Most Wanted, they, they, well, the only thing they ever ask me is, is, are we still sending the checks to this address? Yeah, that's, <laughs> on, on FBI Most Wanted, they replaced the, the lead three seasons in. On Law & Order LA, we replaced the lead halfway through the first season. Actually, we killed the lead and then moved. And that, that was a... For better or worse, that was my idea. <laughs> Anyways, it was just a weirdly constructed show. And were you not getting along with the lead actor? Or <laughs> no, no, I wasn't that. It just it just wasn't gelling with him. I mean, he's a, he's a fine actor, very nice guy. It just wasn't gelling. And we had this kind of in the in the back half with the lawyers. We had two different we had two different lawyers lead alternating on one week. It was this guy. The next week it was that guy. And it was just seemed kind of messy. And I thought, well, why don't we, we have two terrific actors in the back half. Why don't we move one of them? He decides to become a cop again because he was a cop before he became a lawyer. So when the lead that we, that we wanted to make a change, when that lead got killed, the cop, the lawyer is so indignant, I'm going to become a, go back to being a detective and I'm going to hunt down the guy who killed that poor cop. So that guy moved into the front half of the show. And then, you know, the show kind of felt kind of felt better just because we weren't having this one day off, one day on back half. And 
doesn't matter. The show got canceled anyway. So. When you did the show Joe, it was a French series. Yeah, well, it was a, it was a weird hybrid. It was it was shot in Paris. Jean Reno is obviously French, but he speaks English, and the cast was in was English. So it was it was all in English. Don't ask me why. This is what they wanted to do because shot I forget ten ten episodes or something like that, eight episodes. What is the difference of, from your observation between shooting in L.A., New York, and Paris? First of all, shooting in L.A. involves a lot of cars because everybody has to drive everywhere. <laughs> so you you can maybe shoot two locations in a day. I mean, you can get one move, and that means like like 50 cars belonging to the crew drives to the second location where parking is. In New York City, you can do two, three moves for locations because everything's close by and people just walk one block to this. And, and in Paris, it's like New York. Everything is pretty close together. But whereas in New York, you might have 100 people working on the, on the set and everything. In Paris, you may have 25, much smaller footprint. There's still an artisanal quality to it. The other thing is you get a sit-down lunch break, catered. It's, it's like they set up a restaurant wherever you're shooting. Very nice. According to the union rules, and this was put in place like 100 years ago, wine must be provided at lunch. Oh. Yeah, most people no longer drink wine at lunch. So, But there are some old-timers who make up for it. What is your afternoon shooting like after the wine? So, well, it's, it goes on for a couple of hours. But in the old days, people would take their glass of wine and take it to heart. Now, the younger crews, they don't drink wine at lunch. They just drink water or whatever, tea or whatever it is, but they're not drinking alcohol at lunch. The food is much better in, in Paris. The catering is much. You talked about things can't get made today without some kind of intellectual property attached to it. Is that true even for somebody at your stage of the game where you have a long track record? Can you not go into a, a studio or to an exec, a TV executive's office and say, I've got this idea. It's not based on anything but something in my brain. For streamers like Netflix, Apple, Amazon, no, they, they, they feel better if there's some kind of IP. Even if it's a play or, like I said, an old TV show where they're rebooting or a series of books, they feel much more comfortable with that. With, with the broadcast networks, that's not so important for them. I, I want to switch gears here a little bit as our time yeah. wanes. You've done several documentaries about China. How did that come about? What is your fascination with China? My wife is Chinese, but she, she she was born in the United States, but grew up mostly in Asia. And and also when I was, my grandfather, who worked for a Canadian paper company, traveled in Asia in the 1920s. So he was in Japan in 1921. He was in China in 1922. And postcards that he sent, even though obviously I wasn't alive back then, but, but I saw the postcards when I was growing up photographs and all sort of piqued my interest about Asia, principally through my wife and obviously her her heritage. We started going back to China in the late 1990s. We just discovered stories that thought would need telling. And, and for example, you know, the story of the Jews who escaped the Nazis and then from Vienna in the 1930s, and no country would take them, not even the United States, not even Canada. Took, would take these refugees, and, and until a country would agree to take them, they were not allowed to leave 
Austria because the Nazis obviously did not want to make it easy for them. At that time, China was in the middle of a war. It was being invaded by, by Japan. There was kind of chaos in the country. And the Chinese consul for Vienna, against the wishes of his own government and certainly against the wishes of the Gestapo, started writing visas to Jewish refugees so they could leave and get passage on a boat to Shanghai. And you didn't need a visa to get into Shanghai. You just needed the visa to get out from under the Nazis. And so he started writing these things. And at some point, they closed his consulate in Vienna. So he set up shop in a coffee shop, and he started writing visas there. And he saved thousands of people as a result. Uh, and when they the refugees got to China, they had no money. They obviously didn't speak the language. They had no jobs. And it was basically the Chinese, the poor Chinese people who kind of took them in and helped them settle. And quite a story. The, the film is called Above the Drowning Sea, and it's on Vimeo. Go to Vimeo, go to Above the Drowning Sea on demand. And we were watching some clips from it yesterday, but it's a fascinating story. Have you thought of turning that into a, a regular TV series or a streaming series or something? Yeah, I, I don't know that it would work as a series, but lots of people have tried to, to do the story of the Shanghai Jews. Mike Metavoy, the noted producer, he's Spielberg. Nobody's kind of been able to do it or found enough interest among the studios to do it, period piece. There's, there's all kinds of reasons why. Sounds fascinating to me. I'm just thinking, as a Jew, the thought of being being a refugee in China, you're never at a loss for Chinese food. Some of the refugees, one guy I know, who was actually the father of a writer who worked for him, after he left China, could not stand the sight of rice and never ate rice ever again. You've won a ton of awards, too many to mention here what do awards mean to you something i have to dust <laughs> the awards are always appreciate it's always it's always a nice little ego boost to say oh okay so somebody appreciated the work that's nice when it goes on television yeah you see the ratings numbers but you don't have a direct contact with the audience and the, the awards in a way take that are the stand-in for that. And it's also a lot of the times from your peers. Does your price go up every time you win one? Only if you win something like an Emmy or an Oscar. If, if you win a Writers Guild Awards, probably your your price doesn't go up. Some awards, your price goes down after you. Do you have a holy grail? Is there a project that you've been trying for years to get off the ground that just hasn't gone? I have, actually. <laughs> Quite a few. I could show you a whole shelf, but principally, there, there's two projects. So there's there's one. It is about a. It's set in medieval times, and it's a true story of a, a, a excommunicated Irish priest who ends up as Genghis Khan's chief spy and diplomat in the Mongol invasion of Europe. So that so that's that, that's one story, and we've come close over the last couple of years, and we may still come close. Anyway, it's a great story, great yarn, has a lot to say about the world today. And the other story is Me Lai, which counterintuitively is one of the great stories of heroism and bravery, and that really defines what patriotism is. Despite how everybody thinks, oh, it's just about this horrible massacre. Yes, there's a massacre. But in that massacre, there was 
one man, one pilot who was a true hero, not a liberal guy. He had voted for Nixon and uh, he was a helicopter pilot who just behaved the way you're supposed to behave in these circumstances and stop the massacres, saved some people and ended up testifying against the culprits. And the story of a young lawyer who was from a good Republican red state family who believed in Nixon and who believed in the war, but who prosecuted the culprits and and worked with this helicopter pilot and kind of redefined what patriotism is and what duty is. And the lessons of this pilot and of this lawyer are taught today in every military academy in the country and in Europe. So that one's not, hadn't gotten a green light anywhere. Not yet. Tom Hanks's people were very interested. This was at a time when they were uh, moving from HBO to Apple. And What's next for you? Well, I'm doing a project about big oil in the Middle East. So that, that's, uh, I'm, I'm writing that and writing the pilot. Are you going to the Mideast to, to research? I was in Saudi Arabia last year and in Dubai. And then I have a feature film that is threatening to go into production uh, <laughs> in, in the spring about the murders of indigenous women and young girls in the Northwest in British Columbia. We're going we're gonna to wrap up because we're out of time. But is yep. there a question that you would like to answer that I haven't asked? <laughs> no, there isn't. <laughs> okay. Well, goodbye. Nice to talk. All right. Uh, yeah, that's great. So uh, safe, safe travels. And I'm looking forward to seeing more of your work on TV. And, Thank you, uh, Stephen. Or even on the big screen. Are, are, yes. Are, do big screens exist anymore? Once I got really? a big t- a giant TV set, I never go out of the house. Well, you have a big screen in your house. But I would say your your view your listeners uh, should check out Above the Drowning Sea on Vimeo on demand. They will en- enjoy the experience, hopefully. It's a good story and stories of refugees are important because at some point in the history of everybody of their family, everyone was a refugee. We're only where we are because somebody at some point said, "Yes, you're welcome to stay here. Make yourself at home. It's a, it's a universal story. My thanks to Renee Balsay for being on Life Slices and sharing his knowledge about the shows that help fill our nights and days in umpteen reruns. Whatever you think of what you watch on TV, shows are churned out by a dedicated group of individuals, but it's all fueled by the creative mind or minds of the creator or creators who plant the seeds of inspiration. If you liked this program, please like Life Slices on social media and subscribe wherever you find fine podcasts. Life Slices is produced by Beatnik Ravens Productions, all rights reserved. Music courtesy of Fesslian Studios. Oh,